Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the University of East Anglia in collaboration with the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Coordinator at the Centre for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Sherzod Mimunov, lecturer in Japanese history at the University of East Anglia, with whom I will be touching on the histories of empire and war. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Sherzod. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks, Ollie, for organizing it. I would like to start off by asking, how did you get into Japan's war history? Thanks. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I was a master's student in Tsukuba in Japan, in Ibaraki Prefecture, and I was mostly spending a lot of my time basically learning the language and trying to read um, as much as I could in Japanese. And I enjoyed reading uh, history-related books or history-related sources. I think it was a combination of uh, some advice from my uh, teachers. Uh, Professor Harald Kleinschmidt uh, was a historian himself, but he used to teach history of international relations. And because I was doing an international studies degree, I was very interested in how the world we have now or the world we study, we the world uh, events that are happening now, are what is the background? How did this all come to be kind of questions? And uh, at the time, I decided to do a PhD. And when it came to the topic, it was quite obvious that I would be heavily reliant on a history-related topic or if not history itself. At the time, I, I hadn't imagined that I would become a historian, to be honest, because I was doing an area studies uh, master's degree. And uh, Professor Kleinschmidt basically advised me, uh, well, you have to use the languages that you have, and the linguistic abilities basically will guide you in the choice of your topic and in what you want to do. Obviously, you should also be interested in in the topic itself, passionate about it. So I decided initially to write about war memory in uh, Soviet Union, in the Soviet Union, and in Japan. Um, then, of course, uh, it was very broad, as many um, topics or as many proposals in their early stages are. And I ended up actually looking more deeply into um, the not not just the history of bilateral relations. Uh, but also some more complex processes uh, which uh, which happened, which accompanied, if you like, Japan's transition from empire into post-war nation-state. And um, what links did you find between the war memory of the Soviet Union and Japan? Initially, I I set out thinking about a comparative uh, framework, you know, but then I was, I think it was a bit um, undercooked, if, if that's the word. Basically, it was a very broad interest in how a, a certain experience, and in, the, in these two cases, the experience was quite different, as you well know, uh, how an experience of, of a traumatic uh, collective um, undertaking, for example, uh, a war, shapes a nation state or how 
it then informs certain narratives of certain discourses um, in that nation's making or remaking. So that was the big question. Uh, I very quickly understood that probably I was trying to compare something very difficult to compare. I, I then moved on, you know, as it evolved, I moved to look uh, into more general things, not necessarily attempt a direct head-to-head uh, -head comparison, but look at maybe some underlying causes. And my contention would be, if I could prove it, and because I was approaching it at the time from a political science or kind of very theoretical perspective, was that uh, there must be some common experiences regardless of uh, whether the experience of the war was positive, as in the case of the Soviet Union, or negative. I mean, positive, I say, of course, um, in a very general sense, uh, victorious, let's say, victorious in the Soviet Union or uh, defeated in the Japanese case. Uh, but I think the next change in the topic and the next change, basically the thing that guided me towards what I ended up doing was um, the PhD program. I was uh, admitted to Cambridge University uh, Faculty of um, uh, Department of East Asian Studies, Faculty of uh, Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, and in conversations with my supervisor, in the initial conversations, I realized that I think I should be more concrete and that I realized that I will probably be a writer historical, a purely historical, based on archives, uh, PhD. Um, and that's when I found these, this, this very interesting, um, to me it sounded quite mysterious at the time, uh, quite an interesting question uh, of why is the history or historiography, if you like, of Soviet-Japanese relations or of the links of interactions between these nations, not necessarily on the national level, but on other levels. Why is it so uh, centered around the issue of territorial um, dispute, the Northern Territories dispute, as it's called in Japan? Um, I understood why it was important, but I couldn't understand why almost everything written on the on the history on the post-war history um, in one way or another revolved or, or it seemed to me revolved around this topic so um that's how i then um tried to find maybe an alternative topic a topic of comparable importance a topic that was in a way I can't say, I won't say it was ignored or neglected, but it was seen as maybe resolved, something that was resolved on the state level after the signing of the um, joint declaration in 1956, which restored diplomatic relations between the Soviet Union and Japan. Um, I think the view was, and again, following the tradition of mainly nation-centered, state-centered history uh, that once again dominates uh, Soviet Japanese historiography um, in, in the English language at least uh, in that tradition simply because the, the Soviets and the Japanese signed a declaration um, and restored relations the episode 
of Siberian internment, uh, and this is the topic of my book, of 600,000 Japanese um, captured in Manchuria and the Kuril Islands and southern Sakhalin um, and moved to the Soviet camps and kept there anywhere between uh, a, few, a few months and 11 years, this topic then um, it is, is seen, if you like, as done and dusted, as, you know, consigned to history. So my contention then was, why do you not talk about this? Because this, is, this might be resolved on the state level, but it's left very important legacies. But it also, besides its legacies, besides its um, some living imprints that it left on the Japanese national memory, collective memory, on the Japanese society, there are living people. There are survivors, witnesses, who are still alive. And at the time, obviously, uh, in at the beginning of the 2010s, when I started my PhD, uh, they were younger than they are now. But even now, um, the average age of, of uh, the survivor being 95, even now there are quite a few um, of these survivors remaining. So uh, it was a combination for me of, of many things. Uh, but I, I became very interested in this topic and I ended up devoting my whole PhD and now it became a book um, on it, uh, to that topic. And um, I'm sure you've faced this question many times uh, over the course of your academic career, but uh, what makes this research uh, worthy of study, in your opinion? Thanks. I think uh, this research, this particular um, topic, which which covers about 11 years, obviously the event itself lasted about 11 years, uh, I located in, in broad context, both temporal context and geographical context. So I don't just focus on the 11 years in this book. I, I look back into the Japanese empire and the roots of, of the internment um, are firmly uh, located in the empire, in the imperial expansionism into uh, Manchuria onto the onto the mainland, and of course that then its legacies continue up to, up to this day. But this event itself is just one strand or one episode, if you like, or one encounter in a broader history of Japan's empire, but of not just Japan's empire. I would l locate Japanese imperial experience in, in yet broader contexts in the clashes between, on one hand, the so-called Western powers and Japan for primacy in East Asia. Um, I also like to think <clears throat> about the Japanese and the Soviet um, challenges. Maybe that's too strong a word, but uh, Japan and Soviet Union's revolt against the supremacy of the West in the 1930s, uh, which is very strangely comparable, I think, which are very strangely comparable, despite the fact that this was also uh, a time of mutual between the Soviets and the Japanese, mutual mistrust, mutual apprehension, especially uh, along some borders. Um, so I would also like to see this very 
um, turbulent period in which Japan tries to build its empire in every sense, in obviously in, in terms of influence over other um, areas or over other peoples, in terms of industrial might and military might. Um, we can see how thinking, imperial thinking evolved to coincide with the expansion on the, on the land. I mean, the physical geographical expansion was always accompanied with a certain lag uh, by an expansion in thinking, an expansion in the idea of the empire that is getting bigger, it's getting more uh, inclusive, or it had to be more inclusive. And of course, it, 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 shaped, it, it faced uh, clashes. It, it, it was born out of the clashes between those who thought that we need what uh, uh, Kate McDonald has called cultural pluralism in the empire, in which the Koreans and the Taiwanese um, and uh, other uh, newly, um, the subjects that have newly joined the empire are seen as, uh, as equal um, parts of, of the imperial fabric. But on the other hand, there is a, a more reactionary, if you like, or, or a more conservative um, camp, which says, no, J Japanese empire, it has to be Japanese at its core. So, uh, but then that clash is just one clash among many. Uh, and and, and this, this massive undertaking of the Japanese empire has, I think, personally, um, and I hope it, it is reflected in my research, has been... Um, hasn't been actually done justice by um, over the past few a few decades, although that is changing and, and more and more scholarship, very exciting scholarship on the Japanese empire is coming out um, by the nation state or national framework um, in the post-war period. Because in the post-war, for obvious political reasons, not just domestic political reasons, but for foreign policy or international political reasons, nation state comes to the fore and the post-war Japanese nation, nation state is it presents itself I'm not saying it was as an ethnically homogenous ethnically exclusivist to an extent Tessa Mora Suzuki has written about this in her um, in her book about uh, Cold War Japan and migration in which yesterday's subjects who were very quite aggressively um, subsumed, uh, quite aggressively integrated into the empire by, for example, the Kuomintang policies uh, and other policies, are suddenly third country nationals. Of, of course, the U.S. occupation did play a part in this too. So what I am getting at, I guess, if I make it short, the empire was a multinational, multi-ethnic, transnational, multi-border, multi uh, multi-regional undertaking. It was massive. It was very short-lived, but that didn't mean that it didn't leave traces. It didn't, it, it, it actually, in every sphere or in every realm of society, it left its nets. It, it, it cast a net over the territory, however shortly. And trying to squeeze that all into one very small um, framework and kind of 
abandon everything else, abandon all the institutions, the traditions, the the migrations, the exchanges, the um, the thinking, uh, all of that in favor of of a narrowly defined ethnically homogenous nation state. I think it does it does the topic uh, a little bit of injustice. I see. Having talked about the scholarship, this lens through which you've done this research of Japanese empire, it seems very much wrapped up in war as well. It seems very difficult to extract one from the other. And as such, in my own experience of researching Japanese war heritage, I find that narratives within Japan of empire are usually associated with war museums, but are also very domestically focused and don't really discuss Japan's overseas colonizing efforts. In short, I was just wondering, how is this transnational view of Japanese empire received in Japan itself? Certainly, over the past decades, that perception has changed, and it is changing dynamically. There is um, a lot of um, new research on the Japanese empire um, in Japanese from different angles. What is really interesting, what is really important, I think, is that uh, the empire, perhaps because of the distance, uh, temporal distance, because of seven, 75 years roughly, well, if we, if we can, of course, trace it uh, further back, uh, the, the empire itself, but uh, let's say if we take uh, 15th of August 1945 as the date when the empire collapsed, um, it's quite a long period, roughly one human's lifetime. Uh, and I, I like to think that this distance enabled scholars, but not just scholars, but broader commentators in the Japanese society to, to be able to tackle empire, to be able to bring empire back from this, I'm, I'm not going to use the word neglect, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it will be too long a conversation if we really dig too deep into the reasons why the empire was left out um, in, in, from, from most scholarship, especially in the early post-war periods. Um, but it was. It was left out. Uh, scholars have used the term imperial erasure, as if the empire was completely erased from um, not only the pages of history, but also uh, consciousness of the people, the collective memory of the people. Um, the empire was maybe, if not willfully erased, willfully avoided, then it was um, it was probably not emphasized enough. Uh, and I think I think the guilt, the war guilt, and the the the, the negative memories of the war, the um, the war responsibility issues, which are quite complex and they don't just concern domestic Japanese public because they have colored, as you well know, uh, Japan's relations with its former victims and, and, and neighbors. Um, so this issue has, has had very difficult and very unpleasant baggage attached to it, uh, which is understandable to an extent because empire was a big failure the fallen empire 
is not something you are proud of and you want to remember. However, I think one thing we should do as historians, at least, is we should detach empire from the emotional and um, um, what's the word? You know, uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't always look at empire based on the value judgments, but see it as a historical phenomenon. We we, we should see it as um, an undertaking. Uh, you know, you can look at it as as a as a huge logistical undertaking. Just look at, for example, all the vessels that used to transport people between Japan, the metropole, and the colonies. Or you might want to look at um, the uh, volume of rice imported from Korea and Taiwan. You might want to look at the bureaucracy and how uh, this bureaucracy was shaped and how it was then adapted to the needs of every colony. You might want to look at architecture. Bill Sewell has written a wonderful book about Japanese in Changchun. Um, and however unpleasant or however difficult and however complex uh, these issues, these legacies of the empire are, I think it is really important to look into, um, into these legacies and into the, into these, um, into the traces of the empire because they're everywhere and uh, they are, they shape not only the way uh, not only very consciously, but also unconsciously, the way in which the past is constructed in people's imaginations. Very differently, I'm sure, as, as a British person, you will know that, you know, empire is, is seen very differently in this country. And the contrast is, is very telling. If you want to dig a little bit deeper, you can see how, um, what kind of emotions the word empire brings in, brings, brings out in, in people's minds in both countries. But for a moment, at least as professional historians, we should leave those emotions alone and uh, focus on, on, on this uh, large undertaking, transnational, multi-ethnic undertaking that, that stretched across sea and land. And I think that's what the Japanese historians are starting to do. Well, they have been doing it for a while. But there is a lot more interesting research coming out. And in Japan, while the perception of empire has not fundamentally changed, um, at least the intellectual um, realm is, is, I think, becoming more and more um, aware and, 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 and readier to face the empire and to dig deep into the imperial history. Uh, and it's it's it is reflected also in Anglophone scholarship because uh, I I think the last decade has seen a very good number of quite a uh, quite a big number of very exciting interesting books that that look at various aspects of of empire and I'm I'm very happy to when my book comes out hopefully to see my own work as part of 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 that wave of, of new research that prioritizes not what we used to look at as, you know, especially if you come from international relations, you look at the nation as the unit of global politics, of world politics. So without specifically being preoccupied with the state or the nation, uh, there is so much new research that actually analyzes 
things that go beyond the state or that happen despite the state. And I think that is also happening in, uh, in, in Japanese and Anglophone scholarship on the empire. You compared earlier the different reception of the idea of empire over here in Britain as compared with Japan. And I'm just curious, how does Japan's imperial history fit into post-colonial studies, which has so often been focusing on the Western empires, which comparatively speaking, existed for much longer and also have more history out of uh, wartime than Japan's empire might? It's a very difficult question, but it's also really interesting. And I hope this could this comparison, this broad transnational comparison, can be done at some point. Krishan Kumar uh, has written a book about empires, which is a very well-written, uh, very enjoyable read. I was very disappointed not to find Japanese empire among the empires that he looked at. Um, if we locate the Japanese colonial experience and post-colonial experience in this broad context, we see probably several trends. One, one trend would be, and again, this links to how empire was perceived immediately after the, after the war in Japan itself. Because of Japan's defeat and because the empire's ultimate failure on all fronts, but especially because of the U.S. occupation that happened uh, allied occupation that dominated by the United States um, in, in the immediate aftermath of, of defeat, the empire and the responsibility for it and the responsibility for its colonies, uh, for all the apparatuses that were constructed by, by, the, by the empire that were necessitated by the everyday running of this behemoth that stretched um, thousands of miles um, across land and sea. All of this was seen, at least within the Japanese society, as something that was exacted from the outside. That because for seven years Japan is run, of course, in collaboration with, with local Japanese uh, politicians with the Japanese government. However, uh, most of the decisions were taken by the U.S. occupation administration. So uh, all of this is seen as it's out of our hands, kind of. So, so we see a certain rupture, at least when it comes to colonies. And that rupture was beyond any doubt enforced by the Allies. Um, of course, it's, it's not just the United States. The Japanese empire was dismantled. Of course, it, it, it was defeated initially, but what happens after the empire is gone? What happens after the Japanese themselves are completely taken out of the equation by the Allies in the sense that Japan doesn't really play, at least politically, any role in how its former colonies are administered? And this is a very interesting comparison that you can make, for example, with Britain, uh, France. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer or a comparison, but I think uh, some, some, at least on the political level, there is this very clear difference. However, that difference can be then cancelled out by some of the um, some of the other links or some of the other legacies that survive in other realms. Let's just look at, for example, the, the economic realm, the the realm of trade, in which Japan dominates after some time, uh, especially from the from the period of 
high high speed economic growth, Japan becomes a very significant、um, economic player in in the areas where it used to have its empire, or it has growing influence over the areas, growing economic influence, growing、um, trade links and other networks, supply networks. Uh, that very interestingly coincide with what used to be Japanese Empire. So it's not totally or completely something that was constructed after the war.、Uh, there has been a lot of interesting research. The late Aaron Stephen Moore wrote a book about empires' post-war links. You know, after the empire has 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 gone, has collapsed, he he talks about. Japanese infrastructure projects in Southeast Asia, for example. There's there's been other research that traces post-war relations or post-war links with with some of the seeds, if you like, that were planted during the empire. Carter Eckert spoke about、uh, Park Chun-hee, for example. And、uh, there are so many other ways in which you can actually see that the empire didn't really go away. It didn't completely go away. It it kept resurfacing, like this behemoth or leviathan that continues to resurface, continues to come up to the surface of of the ocean, in which you you see some traces, some of its features, some of its、um, phantoms, maybe, and and which which you can't really say that、uh, this was completely gone or this was completely erased. By the United States or by the Cold War requirements. So,、um, in a way, Cold War requirements actually helped revive those ties,、uh, but for obviously for a different purpose. I think you only have to look at、uh, heritage studies and Japan's dominance in UNESCO to see another way in which the Japanese Empire has re-emerged in a different form. But there's yeah, there's so much more we could talk about, but I'm afraid we're running a bit short on time. Before we wrap things up, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your books, "Dismantling Japan's Empire" and "Overcoming Empire in Post-Imperial Asia." Thank you. These are two volumes that I co-edited with my supervisor, PhD supervisor, and long-term collaborator, Professor Brad Kushner. These two books deal with a plethora of issues,、uh, some of which I've just、uh, mentioned. I've just talked about post-imperial. East Asia or post-imperial Asia in general.、Uh, these books have been born out of the ERC project, European Research Council project,、uh, the, the dissolution of the Japanese Empire, which was led by、uh, Professor Kushner, and I was a researcher on that project. And the, the overarching theme or, or idea behind these both these volumes and the broader research project was that. We tend to stop analyzing Japanese empire on August 15, 1945. That is one big problem. Another big problem is that we tend to look at it mainly from the Japanese or even American viewpoint or Anglophone viewpoint, and that Japanese American U.S. Japan alliance has a, a disproportionate influence on our thinking about Japanese. Post-war history that we should actually link Japan back into Asia, and I think th- these two volumes they do that through bringing new scholarship. Much of the the scholarship in these two volumes are Japanese or East Asian scholars who've never published in English before, 
but of course there are other scholars who've worked on various aspects of uh, Japan's empire and imperial legacies. So the, the lens that we use in these volumes is not simply just through Japan or about Japan. We have very forcefully argued, actually, in, especially in the second volume, Overcoming Empire, that you can study Japan, Japanese empire and not be solely focused on Japan itself. This actually is another proof of how pervasive and how uh, far-reaching some of the legacies and some of the institutions and structures of the empire were. And uh, there is also a third volume, which Professor Kushner has co-edited with my uh, colleague, Andrew Levitis, which uh, also continues the theme. It's it's titled In the Wake of, of the Empire. And, and uh, these three volumes, which I have contributed to, we hope that they basically diversify our ideas or our thinking about Japan's empire, not only from the Japanese perspective, but also from the perspective of its former subjects or former occupied territories, and that it brings a rich gamut of research and possibilities and angles through which to look at this very difficult, understudied in English uh, process of transition, very painful transition from empire to post-empire in Japan and in East Asia in general. Sounds fascinating. Clearly a burgeoning field of research I look forward to watching grow. Thank you for your time, Shazad. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Ollie. You can find links to Shazad's research profile in the description below. If you would like to tackle the challenging field of transnational imperial history with Sherzod, check out the Researching Japan module of our new MA in Interdisciplinary Japanese Studies. Beyond Japan will be taking a break as the university prepares for the next academic year. We will be back with new episodes in September, and we hope you join us then. Thank you for listening.